This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. After Stoney revealed to me that he had found a map some 20 years ago, drawn by his father while on death row, we took it upon ourselves to see if there was any validity to it. We all wondered if it was real or some hoax concocted by a playful Billy Burt. When we began digging, we thought we had found something to substantiate the map. There's a chance you're going to find money. Good chance. Bill Burt. Bill Burt, that boy. Oh, what did you just hear? I heard that. We were quickly dismayed to find that our discovery was nothing more than a piece of rusted metal buried about a foot and a half deep. But there was also a large piece of misshapen concrete that looked as if it had been poured to fill in a hole that previously existed. See, somebody fill in the hole we found it. But it fixed it, right? You see what I'm talking about? They fill in the hole we found it. On that end. That's all thing makes sense, true? Maybe one of the other members of the Dixie Mafia had come back to the spot to retrieve whatever it was that was buried. Either way, there was nothing there now. But Stoney couldn't let it go. He just knew his father wouldn't have sent him on a wild goose chase like this. It wasn't his style. So he and his son Stone went back to the same spot a few days later. And I still cannot believe it. But he actually did find something. The metal detector went crazy on it. It wouldn't, but nine or ten inches down. When we found it, it had a piece of black plastic across the top, sort of uh, as the first light of defense. So. And when we pulled that black plastic off, there it was. Something wrapped in white plastic. So we excavated it by hand. Had stone reaching fill of it. It was wrapped around and around with white, clear to white plastic. And the plastic had then degraded to where there was holes in it. And wrapped around that was regular hemp twine. And when I went to undo the twine, it just fell apart. It just disintegrated. What was up under the plastic and what was stuck to the gun with rust and just almost fused was a pair of black double knit pants, the exact pants that my mother made for him in 1970, because she kept him looking like Elvis Presley. She was one of the best seamstresses around. Unwrapped everything. Lo and behold, there it was, a 30-inch double barrel shotgun. A shotgun buried by his father. We were just a bit off the mark days before, a mere six feet away from where the gun was found. I wondered What was so important about this shotgun that Bert decided he needed to bury it? Was it used in a bank robbery? A murder? Was it the same shotgun he almost killed Sheriff Earl Lee with 
and with something else buried and retrieved where the cement was filled in. We may never know, but this discovery gave us renewed hope that if we continued to explore the maps that Bert made in prison, we might find more. And that was a bit of a scary thought. What if we find a body? We decided it was best to involve law enforcement. We met with the Hall County Sheriff's Department, crime scene investigator Cheryl McCollum, and retired Barrow County Sheriff Joe Robinson. I'm Cheryl. How are you? Captain Wallen, how are you? Cheryl nice Stoney, this is Sean. Sean. Nice to meet you, sir. Here's a story, sir. In 1974. Stoney laid out that not only had he found a map containing burial markings of one kind or another, but that he also had a tape recording of his father describing in detail the murder of a woman who has yet to be found or identified. This is a recording that no one we know of outside the Burt family had heard yet. He wanted to pursue this as well. It seemed that Stoney's obsession with tracing his father's footsteps had become about more than just finding treasures on a map. It had become personal. I found a map, and I've got a recording of my daddy's voice telling in detail where this woman buried to the linear foot from where Otis was. Telling in detail that she had a beautiful big ring and a big watch on. What year was this? 1973. 73. Is when this happened. According to Bert's tape recording, the missing woman is that of Billy Wayne Davis's mistress, the one Bert strangled for him after she claimed Davis had shorted her on money made from robbing and killing two people for black beauties. She is supposedly buried on the banks of the Mulberry River, just feet from where Otis Reedling was buried, and would eventually be found in a shallow grave. Was it on that side of the river? Used to be. That's better, because the other side's... If you know how far the road is, that's all we got to know. Yeah, if you come... And we got Because she said it five foot away. This is so weird. Off the road line. Yes. Off the bridge road line. There's Mulberry. The group discussed the best starting point and plan of action based on the information we had. One major problem quickly arose. We didn't have an exact location of where Otis Reedling was found. There were no official map markings or aerial photos found in police records. So we watched what little news footage we could find to help provide clues. Time, a family out picnicking by the river here saw an arm sticking out of the ground. Also around the same time, a hiker smelled a really foul odor, but neither said anything about it. They were probably too frightened of the Billy Burt gang. With the assistance of investigators from Hall County, we began our search. The landscape had changed dramatically over the past 47 plus years and was covered in thick brush that we tried in vain to hack away with machetes. After spending nearly eight hours in the 100-degree heat, chopping through brush, thick, thorny briar patches, and being stung several times each after hitting a yellow jacket's nest, we had made little progress with the exception of finding part of an old makeshift moonshine still. Plus, and that's right in there. Oh, shit. That's right 
That's right in the middle. Let's go. Hey, I, we gotta. Look at there. It's something oh, big. Oh, no. Yeah, see, this ain't natural. It doesn't feel like rock. It might be part of old steel. Many steels up there. It became clear that this was going to be much harder than any of us had anticipated. And we would need to come back again when we were a little more prepared. Another strikeout. But it was important to Stoney to not abandon this quest altogether. Because the details surrounding this particular woman's death would eventually lead to a series of events in his father's life that would break apart a friendship and partnership with dire consequences over 45 years ago. And this is where our story continues. From Imperative Entertainment, this is In the Red Clay. The murder case of the Marietta pathologist from May of 1971 had a major break in the summer of 1972. And let's be honest here, we all assume that Billy Burt and the Dixie Mafia was everyone's first choice as to whom carried out the murders. But police now had a woman in custody named Deborah Ann Kidd, who claimed she and several others committed the murders. And so begins one of the biggest and most embarrassing trials in the state's history. Deborah Ann Kidd was in custody for shoplifting charges when she said she had information on the Warren and Rosina Matthews murders. She agreed to talk only if she received full immunity, which she did. She stated that herself, along with seven men and two other women, had committed the crime. She told authorities that one accomplice, James Creamer, had been shot in the back when Rosina Matthews pulled out a gun and fired several rounds during the attempted robbery which corroborated evidence at the crime scene. She claimed he had killed Warren Matthews and she herself had killed Rosina. Everyone she named was arrested and questioned. James Creamer had a bullet wound in his back. This is a judgment that I have made and I am taking this action because uh, now it appears based on some matters which have come to my attention more than ever before, that a prosecution would be warranted. Eventually, after five different trials, the two women Kidd had named were found not guilty, and all seven men received life sentences, with the exception of Creamer, who got the death penalty. The media had dubbed them the Marietta Seven. Kidd, having immunity, was free to go. Main thing she needs is a little rest. It's been quite an ordeal for all of us. And I want to live, live a normal life, you know. I want to be happy and get married and um, let them do what they want to do with this case. But defense attorneys for the men, along with reporters from local newspaper, the Atlanta Constitution, began investigating the case on their own. They were convinced the kid wasn't telling the truth and that there may be corruption in the system. There were even several police officers who were fired when they spoke out, saying they didn't believe Kid's story that was full of inconsistencies. And none of the evidence at the scene of the crime even implicated any of the people involved in the trials, other than Kid's testimony. Due to the investigation that we conducted, second investigation, I felt like these are the parties involved. You still believe they did it, even though you have no physical evidence to support your theory? Yes. But if not the Marietta Seven, 
who was guilty of the crime. For some reason, people trust lawyers. I don't know why. And if you're going through a bankruptcy or any situation where you have to pull in your horns, a lawyer will tell you, I've had them tell me, hide all the money you can because on paper you fit to have to look destitute. Well, that kind of information is very valuable. Now, one of the things that attracted my father to Bill Wayne Davis in 1968 was he had the ear of at least three or four lawyers that sold him information like this. Billy Wayne Davis was getting intel from the lawyers on his payroll. And while Burt was in prison for the gun charge, Davis had been busy planning out several jobs, including a string of bank and home robberies. Burt purchased a 24-hour truck stop just outside Winder as a new front for his business. And as the rest of the world was busy preparing for Christmas, just a few days away, Burt and Davis were busy preparing to go to work. First on the docket was the home of an elderly couple named Fleming. Mr. President, on behalf of the American people, I would like to ask you to do us the honor of lighting the national community Christmas tree. There we got it. Fleming's the only one that were to be at home. The other was known not to. Two of them were houses that people didn't live in full time. They were places where a certain, shall I say, substance was kept. I mean, hush, hush. Wrens was a small town. Never had no trouble. Concerning the Flemings, it was a used car salesman, retired. And anybody could look at that and know that was a kind of heat like Florida Horde. Who would go rob this old man and woman, 70 years old plus? Even if you didn't kill them, it'd bring a lot of heat. When there was these other houses that were just right for the taking, and two of them couldn't be reported, it was a no-brainer. According to Stoney, it seemed that Billy had his doubts and wasn't keen on robbing the Flemings from the start. He wondered how much money could they really get from an honest, retired, used car salesman anyway. But he told David, he said, now, we'll take these, but that right there, don't, that don't add up. I think it's a mistake. It don't add up. The people smarter than that, ain't, number one, this ain't a damn doctor. Uh, and they're not doctors, so they're not going to have that much money. Number two, it's right there in town, and it'd be more heat than it's worth. I'm going to do these three. Well, Davis wanted to do them all. He'd been playing it too long. He'd had this information from the lawyer. So I told the lawyer they'd get 20%. And his very words to me was, now, damn son, do it. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. The events that transpired next have been debated for the past 45 years, not only by Stoney, but by some law enforcement officials as well. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. 
started with the GBI in 1973 uh, as a special agent. That's former special agent Robert Ingram. He spent 30 years in the GBI, working on some of the largest cases in the state's history, like the Atlanta child murders, for one. I've been interviewed more times than I could even uh, imagine about that. But in December of 1973, 25-year-old Ingram was in the middle of his rookie year when he got the call to report to the small East Georgia town of Wrens. I was assigned as a, a field agent at Thompson, Georgia, and uh, was called uh, on December the 23rd, 1973, uh, to uh, Jefferson County, Wrens, Georgia, to assist in a double homicide, uh, Mr. and Mrs. R.L. Fleming. I, I was just young enough to not to know what the hell I was doing, but I learned a lot quickly. I had to. I had to figure it out. And uh, did. The night before Agent Ingram got the call, another elderly couple in their 70s were brutally murdered in their home. Evidence showed that they had been tortured and beaten before their deaths. Agent Ingram recalls the grisly scene at the home of Mr. and Mrs. Reed Oliver Fleming. We, we were called uh, and responded to the scene of the Fleming residence. Mr. Hugh Fleming, their son, discovered the bodies after his father did not show up to teach Sunday at school that morning, that Sunday morning at church. He went to their residence around 10, 30, 11 a.m., discovered their bodies of his parents. Their home had been thoroughly ransacked and inside the bedroom, uh, Mrs. Fleming was, was bound with strips of bed sheets. She was face down on the bed. She was deceased with a coat hanger wrapped around her neck. Her husband was lying on the floor adjacent to the bed. He was supine face up. Uh, he was also bound with both a coat hanger and an electrical cord around his neck, deceased as well. Her face and his face was uh, two to three feet from one another where they could really be looking and facing one another. The exterior of the residence, we discovered a smokehouse that had a dirt floor, a smokehouse being a small building used to cure meat and uh, in the floor of that smokehouse were numerous mason jars with adding machine tapes scattered all around which we later determined uh, contained money that had been buried in the smokehouse floor. The investigators immediately started looking for clues, meticulously combing the crime scene to shed light on what took place in the home the night before. I asked Ingram what the investigation process is upon arriving in a crime scene like this. Well, one of the first things, obviously, is to secure and process the crime scene for evidence. You're trying to find any kind of trace evidence that may link a suspect to the crime. You start trying to focus on who your victims are, 
and start a background investigation on the victims where we study victimology to try to determine why these people were in fact victims. And then you also look at, was it possibly a targeted uh, or were they a victim of happenstance? So you try to look at all kinds of different things to identify motive, which can lead to a uh, suspect. But there were no official or obvious suspects in the murder. The Flemings were respected, upstanding citizens in the community. Mr. Fleming was a 75-year-old, semi-retired used car salesman and taught Sunday school at his local church. They had no known enemies. Billy Bird and Billy Wayne Davis would seem to be the obvious suspects given the nature of the crime and their reputation with law enforcement and federal agents. But just like the murder of the Marietta pathologists, they were never even brought in for questioning. And why not? These were two of the highest profile murder cases in the state's history, and it would seem that the two highest profile criminals in the state's history would at least be pursued as possible suspects. But with no leads, the case would quickly go cold. Uh, initial process lended itself to, uh, to no suspect being identified. We assumed what we had, that these people were targeted and that robbery was the motive. Usually, you, you define motive in three areas, either sex, greed, or revenge, and we were not able to determine that anybody had any problem or beef or difficulty with the Flemings. These were two older, fine people in their 70s with no apparent enemies. Uh, and then the jars containing adding machine tapes were about somebody and nobody visible. So we, from all that and through deduction, we assumed that robbery was the motive and these people were targeted. So that's, that's how we began our investigation. And as it turns out, the Fleming residence wasn't the only one robbed that weekend. Just a few miles away, two other homes were reported as being burglarized the night before. Though fortunately, those homes were unoccupied at the time of the crime. One of those homes belonged to a man named Jerry Heyman. On the day prior to the Fleming murder, close time-wise, uh, Jerry Heyman's house had been burglarized in Ridge, Georgia, some couple of miles away from the Fleming residence. So we, we thought the two could be related. Heyman's home had been ransacked, and a safe that he stored a large number of guns and valuable coins in had been broken open and cleaned out. Now, the events you've just heard are indisputable facts. There is enough evidence to show them. And Stoney openly admits his father did rob the Heyman house. It's the rest of the story that's debatable. But to fully understand what happened, we have to jump ahead a bit. Because while investigators were busy putting pieces together and trying to make sense out of what happened in Wrens, Georgia, Bert and Davis were busy robbing banks across the South. And one of those robberies could prove fatal to the very existence of the Dixie Mafia.
The men were about to rob a bank in Alabama when Davis called his wife, Mary, to check in. She said, baby, there's an emergency. You gotta come home. He said, what is it? She said, I can't tell you on the phone. Just come home now. What is it? I can't tell you on the phone. You gotta come home now. He couldn't get it out of her. He said, Billy, something, something bad the matter. And because she won't tell me what it is, she got me worried. I've got to go home now. And they said, all right, son, we'll put this off because they couldn't do it with just him and the third party. Billy Wayne Davis was about to walk into a trap. In, in a word, Murphy's Law, whatever can happen will. They're in Alabama about to rob a bank. While they're gone, case in the bank, this for the next morning to rob it at nine o'clock. She goes in the freezer, the women do, decide to clean out all the old stuff. There are six packages with money from different banks. She happens to pick the one package that didn't feel right to her from a fresh bank. It hadn't been 30 days. 90 days is a factor when it's okay to use it because the banks kept the $100 bills on record for 90 days. She opened that pack and found those $100 bills. She went to the bank and made a deposit. Now, it was not unusual for Davis to hide money because he dealt in used cars. When you're dealing in used cars, it's kind of like a salvage yard. There's a lot that you don't have to port the government as the cash deals. So she thought nothing about criminal activity or she wouldn't have went there. While cleaning out a freezer, Mary Davis had unknowingly found bank money taken in a recent robbery wrapped up in butcher's paper as if it was frozen meat. Thinking nothing of it, she deposited some of the money in her bank account. Within 30 minutes, the FBI was at her house. So when David called the next morning, they were there all night waiting on the call. She broke down and told her everything she knowed, which was nothing but he's going to call me in the morning at 8. When they did, they were listening to her what to say. That's why she wouldn't elaborate when he come home, they were waiting at his car lot, at his home, everywhere he might possibly come. He goes straight home. They got him right there. The serial numbers on the money Davis's wife Mary used could be traced directly back to the Loganville branch of the National Bank of Walton County, the one they robbed on March 6th. It didn't take long to put together the fact that Davis's wife didn't know anything about this and that Davis himself was guilty of the crime. Billy Wayne Davis was arrested for bank robbery. And while Byrd immediately started planning to bust Davis out of jail, Sheriff Earl Lee and Jim West hatched a plan to take down Billy Burt and the rest of the Dixie Mafia as well. Though to pull it off, they would have to get creative and a bit devious. Because to catch a criminal, sometimes you've got to think like one. Sheriff Earl Lee and Jim West came up with a plan they were listening to Mary visit with Davis, and they realized, like my father, Mary was his world. Mary was untouchable. Mary was his only part of normal in his life. She's mother of children. He worshiped her. That's where they come up with this idea. They said, we'll arrest her, make it public, on suspicion of conspiracy to bank robbery. We'll make sure he sees it. We'll let it go to the final hour. Back then the law was, if they picked you up, they had 72 hours to indict you, charge you, or let you go. They kept her two days. They made sure that Davis had a TV and he could see her being arrested. 
they took her and put her in the women's ward, give her no makeup, anything. This lady had a bouffant style hairdo, pretty makeup, dark, complected, beautiful. After a couple of days in there, she looked like mortal hell. They give a woman nothing. They waited to 12 hours before they had to let her go. They come to David and they said, your wife is about to have a mental breakdown. That's the only reason we're here. Are you willing to go see her and try to calm her down? He would have died to go see her. Hell yeah. They radioed over the head. On the way there, they put her in a mop room, small mop room. They handcuffed her to a damn pipe that goes up the wall. They put her on a mattress, convict mattress. Her eyes are stained with mascara. She looked like a damn Dracula. Her hair was a mess. That mop room was between two dormitories of all men that could see the mop room. And what they said to her for the next hour was not what I'll put on this tape, but you can imagine what low down sorry convicts would say to a pretty woman who they don't know who she is. They just tell them what they're gonna do to her, what they'd like to do to her, trying to get the jollies. Her nerves were completely gone by the time they got Davis there. By the time he found out what they were looking at, saying she seen him and she went to screaming, Billy, please get me out, please get me out. That's all she could say, she was just shot. He broke on the spot. He said, okay. When Billy Wayne Davis saw his wife Mary handcuffed to a pipe in a janitor's closet, he immediately took the bait Jim West and Earl Lee laid out for him. Davis was desperate to get his wife out of jail, and he knew the only way this would happen is if he was willing to make a deal. He knew that the feds wanted one thing and one thing only. Billy's Sunday Burt's head served on a platter. And he knew that there was one man in particular that would jump at the chance. Davis knew that Jim West was in charge of everything that involved guns and murder, and it all involved guns and murder. He knew that my dad hated him. He knew that he was crooked by the way that he framed my father on the gun charge. They give him the deal. In return for you, come and claim on the bank robber and testify, and we're going to give you an A1 parole system, which means we'll let you out within six months of the trial. We were clear Mary of all charges, which it had nothing on to start with. Davis was Bert's partner in crime. The two had committed countless bank robberies, home invasions, and murders together. And Davis was someone who Bert trusted completely. He trusted him with his life. In the very minute that the pressure was applied to Davis, he folded. He had just rolled over on Billy Burt for the bank robbery. And with all that Davis knew about Burt, this could only spell trouble. That's what broke it. That began it. Wednesday, April 3rd, 1974, started out like any other in the Burt household. Young Stoney was in school and his mother was busy making breakfast for Billy. He had come home about, I guess, 9, 10 o'clock, being gone for two days, you know, for uh, on business, as we always knew it was. And, she, you know, she didn't have any milk. She was making him breakfast because when he would come home after two or three days like that, he would uh, sleep for a day or two. He would. So she said, honey, before you... Uh, 
get undressed, we went across the street to the Handy Andy and get me a guy like He said, okay. So he took her station wagon. All he had on was a pair of black pants. He was barefooted. As he pulled out, they swarmed him. My mother said it looked like, she said they rushed him. It looked like 20 of them all had the gun. And she heard one guy say, move, son of a bitch, and you did. When I come home at three o'clock, my mother, all the family, everybody was there. I know something's wrong. He was picked up a bank robber never to come home again. Jim West, as always, had his man. And he was bound to make sure that Billy Sunday Burt would never step foot outside of prison walls again. And for this, Davis would prove to be his greatest asset. They took no chances. This was, after all, the most dangerous man in Georgia history. And little did Jim West know, Bert's arrest couldn't have come at a better time. In fact, his very life depended on it. He was picked up on a Wednesday. If he had to be on a Friday, Jim West would have been headed home to Good Hope, Georgia, like he always does, with a tape on his hood like he always put on it. Bert's plan was to have a dump truck hog the road, driving very slowly in front of Jim West as he headed home on Friday night. When West would surely start to pull around and pass the vehicle, Bert and one of his boys, who would be hiding in the back of the dump truck, would pop up and spray West with bullets from two machine guns. He done got the dump truck. This car would have been hogging the road. He probably might have cussed on his bread because he couldn't get around it, but when he went to get around it, two men would have stood up out of the back of that dump truck, looking down on him with the bar rifles, and that'd been the end of him. That's Murphy's Law. That is, Jim West had no idea. That was, that was my dad's plan. Jim West is dying, just as Davis was because he knew too much and he had too much on the line. Billy Sunday Bird was brought to the Cobb County Jail yesterday afternoon. He's now in a maximum security cell on the fourth floor of the prison. Well, we had uh, adequate security, of course, uh, Don. I carried two automobiles and four deputy sheriffs and one uh, state officer. What about weapons? Well, we had uh, adequate weapons. We had a semi-automatic weapon and, and a rifle and, of course, handguns, shotguns. You think Bert was aware of all these precautions that you were taking? Yes, I made him aware of them. Bert will get special treatment while in the Cobb County Jail. He may have visitors, but only his relatives. When he goes to the grand jury or to court, he must be accompanied by a federal marshal. I was not worried. He had been picked up 50 times before. He was bigger than law. He's bigger than life. He was Billy Burt. He was Elvis. He was, he was it. Billy Burt could not be touched. But when Davis turned, all that changed. That's when I became concerned. I said, damn it, this is so real. I think that was the day that I fully realized that, you know, my dad was gone. 
That's the day that I decided to be him. So I went to being him. In the Red Clay is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and created the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Produced and engineered by Shane Freeman, Jason Hoke, and myself. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Voice sessions recorded at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta, Georgia. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. In the Red Clay is a 12-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Follow us on Instagram at In the Red Clay Podcast. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.